The uh, reading this morning is from Amos 6, uh, verses 1 to 14. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. You notable men of the foremost nation, to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kalna and look at it. Go from there to the great Hamath, and then go down to Gath in Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If ten people are left in one house, they too will die. And if the relative who comes to carry the bodies out of the house to burn them asks anyone who might be hiding there, is anyone else with you? And he says, no. Then he will go on to say, shh, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given the command and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plough the sea with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Carnaim by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath to the valley of Arabah. Well, good morning, everyone. How are we? It's that time of year when... Mick Pope's let loose on the pulpit, God help us all. I am particularly excited about this book, and I want to tell you why. Uh, We're not covering chapter 7 in our short series, but there's a verse in here that I think it's important for us, or at least for me, to read and for us to address. In uh, chapter 7, verses 14 to 15, Amos writes, I am no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I am a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees, And the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. See, I'm an amateur at this sort of thing. Uh, I studied theology at undergraduate level, and all I got at the end was a certificate. It's a long story. It wasn't my fault. It was the institution. But nonetheless, I'm not a reverend. I don't have that kind of formal title behind my name, and I don't work for a fabulous organization like TIA. Yet I've got Three books on on climate change and and eco-justice. God has called me out, I think, as an eco-prophet. But I'm no one special, no one in particular. And so as we look at the world this morning uh, from church, as we think about the injustice that we see, are you overwhelmed by it? Are you overcome with grief at the tragedies of war and famine and climate change and all these other issues and the world just rolls on and doesn't seem to care. And what do you think that you can do as an individual Christian? And so like Amos and like 
the amateur Pope. I want us to think this morning about what God is calling us to do as mere amateurs in our life situation and what God might use us. Although a big part of the passage this morning is simply who should we be as individuals, not simply what should we do or what should we say. The other reason I I do like Amos is that as one commentator notes, he's likely he was a wealthy landowner having these sycamore trees and these flocks so that we can engage in justice issues beyond the champagne socialist sneer that we sometimes get. We can, you know, shed our middle class guilt and if God's calling us to speak prophetically, then that's okay in our situation. So let's dig into this passage this morning. The first section, uh, verses 1 to 6, where I'll spend most of my time, prophets don't fiddle while Rome burns. You know that story about Nero fiddling while, while Rome burnt. Firstly, prophets aren't complacent, and I've got a different translation in my notes, so I'll read from here. So verses 1 and 2. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. You notable men and women, of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kelna and look at it. Go from there to great Hamath, and then go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two nations, uh, two kingdoms, sorry? Is their land larger than yours? This continues a series of laments begun in chapter 5 and verse 1, with this word, alas or woe. And when we read this in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, there's a typical word of lament. And it brings to mind, it's even mentioned early in chapter 5, this idea about professional mourners at a funeral. It reminds me of a documentary series we've got at home I really enjoy. It's by David Adams, who's an Australian photojournalist. It's called Journeys to the Ends of the Earth. And he goes to these um, far-flung places and experiences the culture and explores the myths and the stories that the people tell themselves. And, And this time he's in Ethiopia in the festival of Timkat, which is the 12 days of Christmas, although Christmas is at a different time of year in Ethiopia. And they arrive in this village, and one evening there's a, a women who are dancing, and it's euphemistically called shoulder dancing, because they're, they're shaking away. And the story is about the battle between a good demon uh, and an angel, and who will win. And the next morning he's up, and he's had breakfast, and he's wandering around the village, and he sees one of the dancers. And this time the woman's not dancing, she's mourning, she's crying, wailing, and weeping in a way that's you know, largely out of place in Western culture where we keep everything controlled and inside. But in that culture, uh, people mourn in a very powerful and, and visual and visceral manner, and sometimes in a professional way. Um, so this idea of woe is, if you hear this word or you read this word, the natural response is, who's died? Um, I'm one given to the use of humour and sometimes it can backfire. And when I see someone who, at work who typically doesn't wear a suit, I'll say to them, what, what is it, a, a job interview or a funeral? And one time I got caught out and indeed it was a funeral. Um, you get the idea. When you hear this word woe, just like when you see someone in a suit, you know, the question is, who died? And what we have here is a lament about the rich and the powerful who think that theirs is a, a powerful nation, nation beyond all threat. And yet, In reality, Israel was as fragile as the surrounding nations, which all in their turn fell uh, to divine judgment and the political reality of the day. And it it gives us pause for thought, doesn't it, about how we measure greatness and how we think about greatness. So you had the, the notables of the first nation, so the powerful, you know, the best of the best of the best, sir, kind of thing. How do we measure greatness? How do we measure the greatness of a nation? How do we measure the greatness of a leader of a nation? 
has Donald Trump made America great again? Does strong borders make a nation great? Does being tough on crime make a great nation? Does greater surveillance and cracking down on protesters make for a great nation? How do we measure greatness when we look at the world? Uh, the passage continues in verse 3. Hang it, I'm just going to read the translation of my transcript. You can cope. O you that put far away the evil day and bring near a reign of violence. O you that put far away the evil day and bring near a reign of violence. When you live a life worthy of judgment, but think that it will never affect you. Oh, we'll get away with it. You know, there is no God in heaven. There is no Satan in the earth. Uh, imagine a world where there is no final judgment or justice. And of course, a classic example of this I see all too often, day to day, in my reality as an eco-prophet, is climate denialism that refuses to connect lifestyle with climate change and thinks that it will only affect people out there and therefore we don't need to do anything about it. While uh, a recent piece came out, there are already five Pacific islands that have disappeared beneath the waves, at least in part because of the way that you and I live. So not everything we value is great. Not everyone we see as rich and powerful or worth placing our trust in. Of course, in the ancient world, in the Hebrew world, naturally people would be thought of as being blessed by God. And in this day and age, that manifests itself as prosperity doctrine, and it's an anathema. Not everyone who makes it in this world is worthy of our praise or our following. We need a healthy, and I note healthy cynicism of power, politics, and riches. And the other thing that seems to come out of this first section of the passage, for me at least, is that we need to beware becoming relaxed and comfortable because it inevitably changes our vision of reality. I don't mean be miserable. I don't mean embrace poverty as in of its own sake. But what I am saying is that when you ignore God as the source of material blessing and you make comfort your goal, your vision of the world will change. And you will invariably overlook those who suffer and those who struggle and just have a good time because that's what life's about. Which leads me to my next point then is that prophets are not self-indulgent. Verses 4 uh, to six, alas for those who lie on beds of ivory and lounge on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the stall. Sounds good, doesn't it? Hungry already. Who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David improvise on instruments of music. Bad luck, musos. Um, who drink wine from bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. It's very easy, isn't it, to get that middle class guilt of I'm comfortable and I have food on my table and I have furniture uh, a nice bed to lay on, etc., etc., and so on. But this is worth unpacking just that little bit. Firstly, they're obviously feasting in opulence and idleness. And what stands out to me, a bed of ivory. What does that look like? Now, I'm one of these hippie environmentalist types, uh, and I love elephants, and their population is in decline. So when I read about beds of ivory, the anger rises up in me. But of course, it was a little bit more of a big deal back then because it wasn't some gutless wonder from the United States with way too much money who goes to Africa and pays a huge amount to slaughter an animal facing extinction. It would have been people with bow and arrow and spear, etc., to slaughter these things. So at least some courage was involved, right? There's a, there's a cost involved. But one of the things I think we need to think about is not simply 
the audacity of it or the, the opulence or the kitsch even is that if you get yourself a piece of Bible software um, or if you're really dedicated, you get a paper Bible and you flick through and you look for ivory, where else do you find it? You find Solomon's throne was made of ivory. So what's going on here? It's not simply the manifestation of wealth, but it's the keeping up with the Joneses type thing, isn't it? Oh, look, we're the first notables of the northern kingdom, remember, the apostates, so those that have left um, uh, Jerusalem and the temple behind, we're as wealthy as Solomon was. And if you read Kings and if you read Chronicles, Solomon's wealth is portrayed in the most ambiguous fashion, is it not? It was the beginning of the end. Well, it started with David's adultery, of course, but then Solomon's reign it was all pretty much downhill from there for all the reasons that the prophet Samuel warned Israel about. Uh, second point, meat in that day and age, of course, was a luxury. It really should be today, but that's another whole sermon, is it not? Uh, and so they were feasting on this all the time. Idle songs, uh, and it's not having a go at jazz and improvisation and whatever else, but it's saying, and like David, improvise on the... The, the instruments of music. So again, it's that royal pretension. Oh, look at us. We're as good as David as it was. Uh, God doesn't hate music, thankfully. Who drink wine from bowls. From a bowl, not from a, you know. I mean, I, I realise wine glasses can get quite large. I was, uh, we were sending off a, a colleague at work on Friday and I had a, a, a pint at lunch, but I wasn't drinking straight out of the jug. This is, this is what it is. It's, you know, it's overindulgence. And then finally, uh, obsession with appearance, the finest oil. So it's, it's okay to wash yourself. It's not against hygiene and cleanliness. But it's this, this total picture of pretension to power and, and to riches and wealth. But the kicker, of course, right at the end of this description of the self-indulgent lifestyle is this little end part of verse 6. Uh, and so let me, you who lie on beds adorned with ivory, blah, 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 you drink by the bowlful, I'm trying to find it at the end, and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Do not grieve over the nation. And I'm not saying it's, it's, it's simply enough to have the rich and opulent lifestyle and, and occasionally think about the poor with some throwaway phrase like there, but for the grace of God go I. It's not at that shallow level, but they weren't even at that level at all. It's so you don't see the poor. Think about the rich man and Lazarus. It's the parable that comes to mind. The poor man at, at the rich man's gate, Jesus talks about. So it's about excess in a time of peace and economic prosperity, which is what they were enjoying at the time. And therefore, the ruin of Joseph is its moral state. Now, again, this is a fairly relative thing, is it not? Um, what, is, what does it mean to live an opulent lifestyle when great, more than 700 million people live on less than $1.90 US a day? so that we could all put ourselves in these shoes and think about this more. But uh, I want to uh, give you a couple of examples that draw this out in fairly larger-than-life way. Has anyone ever shopped from Amazon? Come on, let's put your hands up. We've all got online back in the day. I was buying DVDs and books before I discovered other booksellers. When I last Googled this fact, and this is a fact that constantly changes, Jeff Bezos who owns Amazon, had a net worth of $154 billion. That's billion, not million. Jeff Bezos 
earns the hourly rate of an Amazon worker every nine seconds. If he were a country, he'd be the 56th richest nation. Wow. It's just impossible to conceive of that much money, isn't it? I mean, I studied astrophysics uh, once upon a time, and we're dealing pretty big numbers, or, or think we understand them, but 154 billion. And you think, oh, well, you shouldn't sneer at people who, you know, obviously he's earned it. Uh, Amazon actively suppresses unionisation. If you try to organise collectively, you will get the sack almost immediately. Ambulances were called to the British Amazon warehouses 600 times in three years. People collapsing for overwork or accidents because they're working so fast. And in at least four US states, Amazon is one of the top 20 employers of people dependent upon food stamps. So what was Israel uh, um, meant to be mourning over? How did the rich people make so much money that they could afford to lay on their lazy backsides on beds made of ivory while they ate meat every day drinking wine from bowls? In a society that every seven years was meant to distribute, redistribute wealth, give the land a rest, and 50 years have a jubilee. I'm doing an Amos. I've started out there with a big American corporation. It's easy to have a shot at. The media's in a bit of a panic in Australia. The IMF has forecast their economy will only grow by 1.7%. Oh, no. Yet in 2018, Australia became the country with the largest median wealth per adult. Yay, Australia. Except, of course, where did that wealth come from? And here's a fact that we acknowledge every Sunday in this church, of which I'm incredibly proud, that all the land on which our wealth is generated is stolen and proper compensation has never been paid, including, by and large, by the church. Oh, and native title is extinguished whenever it suits coal mines that benefit rich mining magnates, but neither Aboriginal people, taxpayers in general because we give them all these discounts, or the climate. Any of you ever received a robo-debt message? Anyone know anyone who's ever received a robo-debt message? How did they feel? I had a friend of mine received one the other day, and of course, it was another error. Robo-debt institutionalises violence against the unwaged, as will the rollout of this cashless welfare card. New Start hasn't risen in real terms in how many years? Anyone know? 25. I don't have anything to give you as a prize, but thank you for participating in my sermon this morning. It's not even kept pace with the poverty line. Yet, we've all received a tax cut recently. And that left-wing communist organisation, KPMG, advocates that it should get $100 a week rise immediately. Oh, and um, Australian aid is an all-time low. We have been stealing oil and gas royalties from one of the poorest nations in the world, Timor-Leste. But how good is Australia? So, profits are not complacent. And profits are not ignorant or self-indulgent. So, what does a prophetic message look like in an age of pleasure without justice? It's the second half of the passage. You'll be relieved. I'm not going to spend nearly as much time. We are close to the end. Well, firstly, we actually mourn injustice. We cry woe or alas. It's easy to get angry. 
it's incredibly easy for someone like me to get angry. Ask me about my anger issues afterwards. And righteous anger is a healthy and valuable thing. Jesus wasn't above flipping over a few tables. But we should also be grieved, moved to tears at times, both by how can people do that sort of thing, as well as how is it that people can suffer in that sort of way. So it's the two sides of things. It's not simply I'm going to be angry at the perpetrators of injustices in the world, because let's face it, at some point in time we need to get angry at ourselves, right? But nonetheless, there are those who stand up and who are expert in this thing. But also we should mourn the fact that they do it at all and that they get away with doing it and mourn the impact on those that suffer. But secondly, we need to call out injustice. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plough the sea with oxen? Is the Pope a Catholic? What do bears do in the woods? It, I, I think it's fantastic, really I do, um, the way that Amos writes this. But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Here are two utter absurdities. Horses don't run on rocks, they break their ankles, they will become lame, they will need to be put to death. One can't plough the sea with oxen, That's, they sink. These are two absurdities. How much more absurd is Amos saying that you turn justice into something that brings death instead of life and turn the fruit of righteousness, something that's sweet tasting and a blessing to the senses, into something that's bitter? And the two uh, Hebrew words in here, mishpat, which can be judicial, which is translated as um, justice, can often mean giving someone what their, is, their due is, what they deserve, the justice that they deserve, the rights that they have under covenant. And the other Hebrew word, sadakah, reward, uh, it's upright living. You know, if people live this way, then there will be no injustice, and yet it's been turned on its head. And we can sit, uh, we can sit, well, I'm standing here, you can sit here on a Sunday morning and recognise that this is not just a message for the church, it's a message for the wider world because what does Amos begin with? A message to the surrounding nations based on creation as well as a message to God's own people based on covenant. It's a particularly strong message for God's people because they should know better, but God holds uh, unbelievers to no less account. So these, what you might call pigs might fly type illustrations, point to the value of satire, I think. Satire is a wonderful thing. And other non-violent strategies to show up the injustices of the world for what it is. I mean, I love Juice Media. Who watches those uh, Juice Media videos? The Australian government. Am I the only one? Yeah, thank goodness. Yeah, they're profanity-laced, but they're incredibly funny. Uh, and they really do skewer things in a way in which they deserve. Love makes a way. People having themselves chained by the neck to Kirribilli House, the seat of government, because of the people who are figuratively, if not in reality, chained and manus and other places, simply for seeking asylum. So what skills, talents and abilities do you have? What creativity that you could use in the simplest possible ways or the greatest of ways um, in prophetic satire? prophetic call out to the injustices of the world how can you organize what things can you do think creatively 
So we mourn injustice, we call out injustice, and we proclaim judgment. Now, this, of course, is the difficult one, is it not? Uh, let me just give you one passage that's pretty blunt in, uh, in Amos 6. If ten people remain in one house, they shall die. That's pretty to the point, isn't it? I would not want to base a Sunday morning sermon on that verse alone. That would be a bit of a smack in the face. But Israel went into exile. Ten tribes, gone. That's it. God's people are remnant in the south. Is that the kind of message that we sell to the world about injustice? Do we take the easy for our strategy? Well, and there is final judgment message in the New Testament. We've got zero time to unpack it. But in particular, if you read the book of Revelation, it's both a warning for the church and an encouragement for the church currently suffering persecution, etc. No, our first point of call must always be we proclaim the gospel of grace. But we do mention that there is a final putting to rights of things. God is going to put the world right, finally, back into shape, where justice doesn't become death, where righteousness doesn't become bitter. But the point that needs to be made, the thing that we need to challenge ourselves with first as the church this morning and then the world, is what role will you play? Are you going to be a part of this putting to rights? Or are you going to be in the way and therefore potentially suffer the consequences? But I couldn't end a sermon on justice without saying, well, there is a certain message of judgment that we need to proclaim. And as an eco-prophet, an eco-theologian, climate change is a judgment, obviously, is it not, on our way of life, on our corporate and governmental structures, on our decisions as consumers. Sadly, though, it's indiscriminate in its impacts. But there's still much work that we can be doing on this and other issues so that people don't suffer the worst of the judgment on our sins. So, an amateur can be a prophet. If I can do it, God can call anyone, trust me. If God calls you, and that, of course, is the process you need to go through of confirming that. Um, some, so, such a call must always be accompanied by an awareness of our own privilege and our embeddedness in unjust systems and therefore the repentance that we heard about earlier in our service. Always appropriate to do that. But we are compelled by the love of God for this world, to reveal injustice for what it is. As for judgment, God extends grace to all who will receive it, but the world will reap as it sows. And that is the message of warning this morning. Thank you.